What up? Welcome to Oasis. Man, I am, I am so excited that you are all back. I have missed you deeply throughout the summer. Um, I don't know if you know, but most of you leave and you leave me here in Brookings and it gets a little bit boring. So I'm glad that you're back. Uh, tonight we are going to kick off a brand new series called I Am. And I'm just going to be honest with you. <clears throat> I think this series is going to be important for all of you. Each and every one of you, I think this series is going to be foundational for you. And here's why. This series is all about Jesus. It's all about him, Jesus. And so if you're a Christian here tonight, let me tell you this, you need to learn more about Jesus. He, he's everything to us. And so this series will teach you that. If you're not a Christian here tonight, here's the first thing I want to say. I want to say thank you for coming. Right? We are glad you are here. I understand the bravery it takes to come into a space with a bunch of people who you don't really know maybe what you believe and you, you found yourself here and there's all kinds of maybe feelings and emotions and I just want to tell you thank you. Thank you for that bravery. Thank you for coming tonight. But one of the reasons you might not be a Christian is because you still have questions about Jesus. If that's the case, this series is for you. Jesus is who we are going to talk about over and over and over again in this series. The heart of it will answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? Yes, he's the foundation of the Christian church. The word Christian literally means little Christ. He, he reset the calendar some 2,023 years ago. He's the most famous man to ever live. About 2.6 billion people today across the globe claim to be Christians. But who really is this guy? Who is Jesus? Over the next five weeks, we're going to answer that question. Yet we won't answer it using our words alone. In the Bible, there is this book called the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says seven definitive I am statements. They all kind of go like this. They're a different iteration of I am and then blank. He'll fill in that blank with different words like gate or good shepherd or vine or light. But each and every one of those is Jesus declaring who he is. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to open up these statements, and this series will be Jesus by Jesus. It's all about him using his words. It's his self-declaration. It's him telling us who he is. You cool with that? All right. Before we get any farther, I want to ask you a question. <clears throat> Have you ever felt let down by a promise? Yes, thank you. We'll get a little participation. <laughs> You'll warm up to me throughout the year. I promise, I promise. Have you ever felt let down by a promise? Some, someone, someone or something promised you and it, it didn't come through or it was less than you expected. Have you ever felt let down by a promise? I know it, it's happened to all of us. Everyone out there has, has felt this at some time. But nowhere do I think this is more evident than in as seen on TV products. You guys know what I'm talking about? Right? Anybody ever seen the sham wow? You remember this thing? Look at how creepy this guy is. Right, he's selling you this towel that if you dip it in an Olympic swimming pool, it'll soak up all the water. Right, that, that's a pitch they'd use or something crazy like that. The ShamWow made all these promises. Or another one, do you remember the shake weight? <laughs> the shake weight promised if you would just pick this thing up, you got ripped. I was looking for a picture to add this week and every single one of them was a dude just jacked shirtless. I was like, I don't think I can put that on screen. <laughs> Right, shake weight, it makes promises. Or this one, I don't know if you've seen this one, the, the potty putter. Anybody, you, you own this at home, the potty putter in your, uh, in your apartment with your roommates? 
but making promises, right? This is going to be a great time. That's disgusting. <laughs> Can you imagine the amount of just like ah, fluids? I don't know. On that, like, oh, it's gross. And then the last one, this one's my favorite. Flex tape. <laughs> Bro, flex tape literally made me LOL every time. This guy would just slap it on everything, and it was magic, right? He would, in the commercial, if you don't remember, on the picture on the left, he saws a boat in half using only flex tape, tapes it back together, and then proceeds to drive across the lake, right? If flex tape does that, sign me up. Each and every one of these making crazy promises. But yet here's how it typically went. You saw the ad, you sent in your four payments of 1999, you sat back and you waited in anticipation, you got eager, you got excited, you checked the tracking number, it was coming today, you opened the box, and almost every time you use one of these products, it lets you down. Because they made these promises. But oftentimes the promises didn't match up to the actual use. The products usually stunk. And inevitably disappointment and frustration ensued as you were scammed, bad, bamboozled, tricked, whatever you want to call it. But it started with a promise. A promise that lets you down. And tonight, we're talking about something that couldn't be farther from that. Jesus will make us a promise tonight. A promise about how to find true life. And Jesus' promises will never let you down. This world is full of promises, but Jesus is not like that. His promise will never let you down. He promises you tonight true life. And isn't that what we're all searching for? True life, the best life, the better life, right? When we boil it down, if, if you were to look back at some of the promises we believe, if you were to trace them to their origins or why you really truly believe them, they all go back to something greater, right? You bought the shake weight because you hoped that it would get you to the fitness that you wanted so that your life would be better. Right, you bought the, the potty putter because one bathroom trip at a time, your life was just gonna get better and better and better. And even in these silly, ridiculous TV ads, they are promise you, promising you something that traces their roots back into a greater purpose. As people, we are all on the pursuit of the best life. It's why we pretty much do anything we do. And best, it's, it's a gray term because to you best is different than me but we're all in the same boat together chasing after this idea of best life young adults in the room why, why did you take the job that you took the one you currently have the one maybe you're dreading showing up to tomorrow why, why did you take that job was it your coworkers? was it the pay was it the location was it the tasks that you would do why did you take that specific job? Chances are, one, if not many of those answers lead you back to, you thought it would provide you a better life. Even if your job is terrible and you can just dream every night about quitting, the fact of having a consistent paycheck week over week is why you stay at that job hoping that it gets you to a better life. College students, why are you even here? <laughs> right? Like, why did you move away from home? Why for the life of you would you sign up for mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds of probably debt? 
Oh, is this too real for this early in the semester? Why did you come and do you grind and you, and you suffer and you, and, you, and you go to class and you don't go to class and you go to class and you don't do your homework and you fail the test and, and it's hard? Why'd you sign up for that? Right, I know syllabus week is coming, but if I preached that at finals, I would have some amens, right? Why'd you sign up for that? I believe it's because you thought it would get you towards your best life. That you have a dream, that you have a job, that you have a salary that you're picturing and, and college is willing to go through that grind to get to that place. And so do you start to see what I'm getting at? From consumer products to college to careers and everything in between, we are offered the promise of a better life. But what really is the better life? What is true life? What is it? Jesus makes us this promise of true life. And as we understand who he is, we'll understand what that is. If you have a Bible tonight, feel free to open up to John 10. And if you don't have a Bible, here's my invitation to you. Out in the foyer at the info desk, we have free Bibles. Every single Sunday night, all throughout the year, if you ever have wanted a Bible, if you forgot yours at home, if you've never owned one, feel free to grab one and take one with you tonight. Let it be our gift to you. Otherwise, John 10 will also be on the screen behind me. But as you flip there, I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you tonight for the chance to gather as your people, for the chance to open up your word, for the chance to follow by your spirit through your word. I pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts, so that we would live and love more like you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 10, verse 9 through 10. Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. The thief, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus here is talking through a shepherding analogy. That the people he was talking to, he was describing this group of sheep and what they need. And in that he says, I am the gate. This is the statement Jesus says about himself. If you're reading from an ESV Bible, it might say something like, I am the door. That's okay, it's the, the same exact idea. Jesus is declaring he is the gate. And when he makes this statement, I want you to remember this whole series is about Jesus by Jesus. In this statement, he is revealing something about himself. And the first one is this, as the gate, Jesus saves. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Now, shepherding was a, a common thing of the time that Jesus was teaching. And so a lot of people in his culture would have been shepherds. At the very least, maybe they wouldn't have been shepherds, but they would have known shepherds. They would have understood shepherding. And so as Jesus is telling this parable, they would have had a picture in their mind. And so I want you to get on the same page as them. Jesus is talking, and what they would have pictured would have been something like this. Can you put that up? Thank you, Noah. This is the pen Jesus is describing when he's talking to the crowd. He's not describing an open field, but an enclosure of sorts. An enclosure with a gate. Do you see where it might be a little bit confusing here? Right, because I see the wall. It's a little blurry, right? Sorry, Google images. But I see the wall, and I see the pen, and I understand this is a gap, but there's no gate there. Nobody else is confused by this? 
Jesus is telling this story. He says, I'm the gate. And everybody would have been. But they don't typically have gates. Right? There's a wall. There's a pen. There's a gap. But there's no gate. And what good is a pen without a gate? And what good is Jesus' analogy if he is the gate, but the gate doesn't exist on the pen? But here's the catch. In ancient times, the shepherd himself functioned as the gate. Literally. Right? What would happen is the shepherd would stand in this gap, kind of like this. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) They'd stand in this gap, and they would stop any kind of predator from coming in. And they would stop any kind of sheep from leaving. They functioned literally as the gate. They stood here all day. And then at night, do we see it? They'd lay there, right? And every time they would stand there all night and they would sleep there all day, they literally functioned as the gate. This is what Jesus is saying about himself. He is claiming he is the gate. He is the entrance point. No one gets into the pen unless through the gate. Jesus is saying no one gets in to his kingdom unless through him. He is the only way in. His presence divides two sides. Those who are inside the gate and those who are outside the gate. Those who have entered through Christ and those who have not entered through Christ. Right? Those who have been saved and those who are not. This is what Jesus is describing to the people who stand there. The only way to get from inside to outside or outside to inside is through the gate of Christ. And so Jesus standing at the gap in the pen symbolizes for us how he stands in the gap between us and God. This is what we need to understand first and foremost as Jesus as the gate. Because at one point there was no gap between humanity and God. Man walked with God, hand in hand, in a way you can't, we can't even con- con- comprehend. They walked together. But sin entered the world at one point, and it caused the distinction between God and man. They were driven apart, and there now exists a gap between God and his holiness and man in his, in his uncleanliness. There is a distinction there. There is a gap, and every single one of us has fallen on the wrong side of that gap. We are separated from God. There's division, and the only way to get back to God, the only way to close the gap, the only way to be with him again is through Jesus as the gate. That when Jesus took his death on the cross and subsequently rose from the grave, he closed that gap once and for all. And as Jesus did what only he could do, It is now our turn to do what only we can do, is enter through him. If you want in the pen, if you want salvation, if you want to be saved, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's not exclusive. The gate is open for everybody. It doesn't matter what you've done this weekend. It doesn't matter what you've done this last year. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. You are not too far gone for God. The gate is open for you. He will call you. He is beckoning you. He has given his life for you. As the gate, Jesus saves. Number two, as the gate, Jesus provides. 
The second half of verse nine reads, they will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus' provision includes freedom. One of the things he provides is Jesus provides freedom. His sheep are not restricted to the pen, right? The, The pen is there for them if they need it. If they need the protection, if they need a place to sleep, if they need a place to be, be, to be cared for, Jesus' pen is open to, to anybody who wants to come in through him. But they are not restricted to that place. Jesus says, come in. But he also tells them, you can go out. You can go and explore the pasture. The whole meadow is, is yours for the taking. Go and explore. Go out and, and live and flourish and have freedom. That is Jesus' invitation. Yet I commonly hear this misconception that Christianity is restrictive, right? Somehow following Jesus will lower your freedom. Some will even use the word that Christianity is oppressive. And when I hear that, I always want to ask the question, says who? Who says Christianity is restrictive? Because it wasn't Jesus. The pioneer, the perfecter, the author, the starter, the foundation of our faith, he did not call Christianity restrictive. Jesus' call was to freedom, that if you follow him, you can come in, you can be with him, you can be protected by him, you can be provided by him, you can be saved by him, but he also encourages you, you have the freedom to go out, to go faithfully into the world, to do exactly what he has called you to do. There is freedom there, immense freedom. He gives you freedom to flourish to explore all the the, the pastures could have for you. Jesus' kingdom is one of freedom. Yet part of this is the misconception often comes from people who don't understand what true freedom is. Our world typically has this definition of freedom that it's the ability to choose anything you want. Right, If, if you want it, you can have it. If you can think of it, it's yours. Good, bad, ugly, you choose. That's what they call freedom. And I sit with that and I think, where's that gotten us? Right, is our world any happier today? Do we feel more satisfied as people with this freedom? Is there fulfillment and flourishing in that kind of so-called freedom? Are you satisfied by that? I'm not. I long for something better. I long for something truer. I long for what Jesus provides. In Christ, freedom is choosing only that which is good for you. And even as I say that, some of you are like, well, that's not even freedom, right? I want to pick what's bad for me. And I'm like, what? Why? Who chooses that which hurts them? What kind of freedom is that? Who chooses that which hurts others? What kind of freedom is that? Freedom in Christ is to choose only that which is good for you. What if all you could ever pick brought you peace? That's it. Every choice you ever made, it brought you peace. Not anxiousness, not worry, not stress, peace. What if every choice you ever made brought you joy? Right? Not depression, not sadness, not loneliness, but joy. Every single time you ever made a decision, it led to joy. What if every decision you made led to love? And it blessed you. And it blessed everyone around you. That to me sounds like freedom. That's what Jesus offers. 
And in case you didn't know, Jesus is the one who made you. He designed you. He created you. And so as your creator and designer, he knows exactly what we need to flourish. And so what he has put in the bounds of what we can choose, when he has given us this freedom, he has given you everything you ever need. And he has told you you can have it in abundance. Take as much as you want in God's kingdom. Take as much as you need. You will always find satisfaction in him. That's freedom. The second thing Jesus provides is he provides protection. Jesus protects his sheep. Now, I don't know if you've spent any time with sheep. I haven't, but as a pastor, I read a little bit too much about sheep. Um, I'd like to read more about like, I don't know, like zebras or something, like something cool. But I always read about sheep. And this week as I was reading, I just was reminded, and I don't want to offend, but if I do, that's okay. Sheep are lame. <laughs> they are. They're so lame. Like, they're so vulnerable. Right? They, they, they have no defense mechanism. Sheep, big? No. Sheep, strong? No. Sheep, fast? No. Sheep, clever? Absolutely not. Right? Like, they've got nothing. Right? And so Jesus is describing this group of people, this, this, this sh- sh- uh, flock, these sheep. And he's saying that he protects them. Right? They need his protection. That's what Jesus offers. And honestly, like sheep, we're vulnerable. We need Jesus' protection. Yet we have this tendency to try to just like muscle up and push through and pull you up your bootstraps and keep going and, and grind and... But every time we do that, we're just reminded this life has this cruel way of reminding you we are not in control. There's too much you cannot control. We're vulnerable. And we need Jesus' protection. We think we can carry it, but we often can't. And vulnerability should not lead us to fear. It should lead us to Christ. And in our vulnerability, no enemy is greater than the one Jesus describes in John 10. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. The thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The thief Jesus is referring to is Satan. He's our enemy. Satan has come to steal and to kill and to destroy all of the good things we have. Some of you weren't ready for this level of like, you know, truth tonight, I guess. But as Christians, do you recognize you have an enemy? That when you joined Team Jesus, a rival came with it. That the enemy, he hates you. I cannot say that strongly enough. He loathes you. The reason he does is he hates everything God loves. And God loves you. Every single one of you, uniquely, personally, and perfectly, he loves you. And because of that, Satan hates you. And that hate, it fuels his mission. And so he steals, and he kills, and he destroys. But yet, even then, I feel like we've got it wrong on how he does this. Most of us, like, picture Satan. He's got his pitchfork. He's got his red skin. He's got his horns, right? You bought the costume. Don't tell me you did, but some of you did, right? And he's, he's like, kicking in the door, right? right? Satan's, like, pulling out the bazooka, ready to take you out. Like, we think Satan's, like, aggressive with it. But I don't think that's how Satan works, at least not most of the time. I honestly think he's tricked the world. Jesus, in John 8, teaches that Satan is the father of lies, 
Go back to Genesis 3, at least mentally with me. If you know this story, it is the fall of humanity. I talked about sin entering the world. This is when it happens in our scripture. And when sin entered the world, Satan tips his hand. He shows us what his strategy is. And if you remember, he doesn't come to Adam and Eve and start a wrestling match. He doesn't start a full-fledged war in order to take down the kingdom of God. You know what he does? He steals, he kills, he destroys, he lies, he deceives, he tricks. He takes that which is good and he corrupts it. And they're deceived by him, the father of lies. And I tell you, he's doing the same thing today. Satan's not coming in guns blazing. No, he's sneaking in the back door, robbing the world blind of all that is good. He's a thief. Let me show it to you. The thief has somehow convinced the world that the only way to have fun is when alcohol is present. And so every football game, it's like, hey, I got my beers, right? Every, every bachelor's night's like, oh, we got our wine night, wine and batch, right? Right, we go to every wedding, it's like, whoa, is it open bar? Right, like, on the invite, it's like you're texting the groom, it's like, I'm not coming unless it's, right? We've been tricked. We've been tricked that the only way to fun is through alcohol. And alcohol is not inherently bad, right? There, there's, there's, the scripture is very clear. Alcohol is not bad, but drunkenness is bad. But here's the catch. There's a brokenness in humanity. And so while alcohol is not bad, it has incredible potential for evil. And Satan, he knows that. And he knows our brokenness. And he knows our temptation. And he knows our weakness. And so he combines the two. And so drunkenness and the abuse of alcohol becomes one of his nastiest tricks in order to take people out. And he's convinced us that this is fun. Think about that for a second. You wake up after a night out, hungover, sick, and hurting. Your body physically rejecting the one God gave you, the one he made you, the one he perfected for you. Your body rejecting the decisions you made last night. As you wake up, you try to recall all of your fun memories you made the last night, but most of them are fuzzy if they're present at all. What is present, though, is you roll over and you check your phone and you see, ooh, I made some poor choices and I hurt this person and this person and this person and this person. And we do all that and then we turn around and say, you know what, I'd like to do that again. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, let's go, right? Like, we'll do it again and 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 our world says alcohol and drunkenness and parties and this is... And nowhere is it more prevalent than in our demographic, right? For 20-somethings, it's literally a binge drinking is the way to fun. And I'm telling you, people, we've bought a lie. Most college students, most young adults spend most of their weekends sick, sorry, and sad. Is that what we call fun now? The enemy, the thief, has convinced the world that the only way to pleasure or intimacy is through sex. So people abuse their bodies or they give their bodies away outside of God's design, hoping to find pleasure and intimacy. We look to be fulfilled, we look to be known, we long for this, we love it, we, we crave it, right? God has knit you like that, he's created you like that, but we express it in these broken ways, hoping to find pleasure, hoping to find intimacy, and is that what you find? 
when you've gone to that website again or you've gone down that hashtag again or you're in that feed again, is that what you find? Pleasure and intimacy? Most of the people I talk to, it's more shame, it's more guilt, it's more consequences than it is anything else. The world has bought a lie and it happens over and over and over again. Tricked that work provides purpose. Tricked that money provides protection. Tricked that comparison is okay. Tricked to believe this life is all that there is. The thief has tricked the world and in the process he has stolen, killed, and destroyed so much good. He's fed us a lie. But Jesus, he's different. And as the gate Jesus protects, he offers something different. He offers true life. Third, as the gate, Jesus enriches. As the gate, Jesus enriches. Verse 10 finishes with Jesus saying, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I love the way the ESV uh, translation reads it. It says, I, have, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What Jesus is offering is not just life. What he's offering is true, full, abundant life. The word Jesus uses there in the original Greek is the word zoe. Zoe means eternal life. It's the description of the absolute fullness of life. It's real life. It's genuine life. It's active life. It's blessed life. It's forever and eternal life. That's what Jesus promises you. Yet too often, people stop short of what Jesus is fully offering them. They get to point one of a message like this, and they hear Jesus saves, and they're like, yes, right, I'm good. A little fire insurance, I skipped out on hell. I'll maybe have heaven, but it doesn't matter as long as I'm saved. So they hear that, and they check out. Or, or they get to that point, and, and they avoid hell, but they just come, become complacent. They stop pushing for anything more. They start, stop diving any deeper. They just become okay with this casual kind of nominal, kind of like half-hearted Christianity. And when we do that, we exist in a subpar life of intellectually acknowledging Jesus without relationally collecting with him. Is that what you want? As I was thinking about this, I was listening to a podcast where they were describing the difference between lifespan and health span. Anybody heard these terms? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a quick breakdown. So lifespan describes the end of your life, right? How long are you going to live? It's usually something like 60, 70, 80 years, okay? It describes the end of your life. This is how long. Health span, health span is different. Health span doesn't describe the end of your life, but rather it describes the period of your life where you stop being healthy. So the number might still be 60 or 70 or 80, but, it, but it's different. It talks about at the point of your life where your quality of life significantly de declines. And as I was listening to this podcast, they were talking about how, how much more important health span has become than lifespan. But yet people are still constantly, when they take their focus when it comes to health, pointing it towards lifespan. Because we're all about the end product, the end goal, the length of time. Right? And, and in that... Part of the hard part is, say you live to like 140 years, something crazy. But say maybe at like 60, that's when your health span ends. Right, at 60 years old, your quality of life significantly declines. What kind of life is 80 years in a recliner? And this is where this conversation becomes important. And this is where what Jesus is talking about also ties in. 
Because Jesus has offered you lifespan. It's eternal life. It's forever life. In John 11, he talks about those who come to him, those who believe in him will never die. Right? Though you die, if you live by believing him, you will never die. He has offered you lifespan forever and ever and ever. But he has also offered you health span. Jesus has offered you change right here, right now. That it's not just about the end of our lives, but today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives that we have here on earth, Jesus has offered you increased health, increased flourishing. He enriches life. Jesus offers you an an increased quality of life that starts now and stretches on for forever, never ending. How beautiful is that? As the gate Jesus enriches, he makes life here on earth a thousand times better. He offers us eternal life to experience right now. What if you could go through every day with peace? What if joy was the mark of your life? What if you had hope in every single circumstance? What if deep community shaped you? What if God's spirit guided your every step? What if your identity never wavered based on your performance or your purpose never wavered based on your season of life? What if we knew how much the creator of the heavens and the earth loved us? How would your life be different with Jesus? As the gate Jesus enriches, he offers true, abundant life. Don't stop short of all Jesus has offered you. Tonight, we're looking at the question of who is Jesus? And he has told us he is the gate. That those who come to him will be saved. That those who enter through him will find freedom and protection. Jesus has promised us what true life is. He saves, he provides, he enriches. It's who he is. And at the start of this year, I could have chosen to preach about anything. Right? I, get, I get complete and total like selection choice, and so I could have chosen to preach on anything at all, and I chose to preach on this, and here's why. Because at the start of this fall, whether you're a college student or you're a young adult, this world is offering you promises. It is, it's offering you promises. Right now, as you step into a new season with new transitions and all kinds of things that fall will bring, there are promises that lie before you. Today, we were at the C event on campus, right? The student engagement expo, and I was handing out mugs, probably saw some of you there, right? And as I looked around, I saw hundreds of different clubs and organizations, each of them with a promise, some good, some maybe not so good, but every single one of them, you know what they wanted? They wanted you. That's what they wanted. They wanted you. That's why they were there. That's why we were there. We wanted to connect with you. We wanted to offer you a promise. But my prayer is at the start of this fall and throughout the rest of the year, we would not take promises that steal from us. That we would not choose promises that are going to destroy in our life. That we would not choose promises that kill what God has for you. Not every promise is good. Some of them are a straight up lie. And so I pray that we have a spirit of discernment. That we're able to look at the choices that lie in front of us this semester, both socially, spiritually, and everywhere in between. And we would choose only the things that give us life. That we would choose the things God has looked upon and looked favorably upon, that he would bless us and he would bless others through us. That sounds like a good year to me. If you're with me, let's pray. Thank you tonight. 
for the chance to step into your word, God. For the chance to open up John 10 and to see who you are, Jesus. That every single one of us, every single one of us, we need to know who you are, Jesus. And so tonight, would you open our eyes anew and afresh that we would see you as the gate and maybe for the first time, God, we would come to you and we would put our faith in you and we would enter into your salvation. Or otherwise, God, would you lead us just in what it means to experience your freedom? That if we feel restricted, if we feel repressed, when we feel, yeah, like we're not living in the fullest of who you called us to be, would you lead us again as, as a shepherd, as a gate? Would you, would you protect and provide for each and every one of your children here? We love you. We praise you. And we worship you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.